My name's Nicole Aberdy, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the Books, Books, Books Sydney Law School podcast series, in which I'll be interviewing a wide range of Sydney Law School academics about their latest books and work. We'll be covering many different fields, including criminal law, international humanitarian law, competition law and constitutional law. I hope that you enjoy listening to these conversations as much as I have enjoyed having them. Thank you for listening. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabity.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the fourth episode of the Books, Books, Books Sydney Law School podcast, a series of interviews with leading academics from the Sydney Law School about their recent work. Today, I'm delighted to be interviewing Dr. Stacey Strong, Associate Professor, about her recent book, Legal Reasoning Across Commercial Disputes, Comparing Judicial and Arbitral Analyses, which was published in 2020 by Oxford University Press. Let me start by telling you a little bit about Dr. Strong. She specialises in private international law, international arbitration, international mediation and comparative law. She has taught at law schools all over the world, including the universities of Oxford and Cambridge, the University of Tokyo and the University of Georgetown in Washington. She's admitted to practice in New York, Illinois and the United States Supreme Court and as a solicitor in Ireland, England and Wales. And she's worked with major international law firms, both in the United Kingdom and the United States. She's written over 130 award-winning books, articles and other works. And she has acted as an expert consultant to a variety of organisations, including the United States State Department and the United Nations Commission on International Trade and Law. She acts as an arbitrator, mediator and expert in commercial, IP and trust-related matters in both the domestic and international spheres. And Dr Strong has won a number of awards for her work, most recently the 2022 American Bar Association Dispute Resolution Sections Award for Outstanding Scholarly Work and as Academic of the Year 2021 in the Australian ADR Awards. Stacey, welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast. Thank you, Nicole, and thank you for having me. It's a great honour to be here. I know your your other interviewees, and so I'm honoured to be in their company. Now, your book is the first ever empirical study of legal reasoning in commercial disputes, and you focus on three related issues. Would you like to talk about what those three issues are? Certainly, and uh, I appreciate being heralded as the first. There actually is some empirical work on this field uh, by, uh, you you caught me out, I don't don't remember her second name, Sonia, uh, starts with an S. She's a former professor at the University of Chicago, and in the 1970s, she did do some very groundbreaking work in this field, but unfortunately, she became the dean of a law school very shortly after that, didn't have an opportunity to publish it. Um, The book that, if you look in the many footnotes, you will see that work referenced, Um, And so I am hoping to build off of her kind of framework. So um, the the three main questions that I am looking at in this particular book is whether there's any difference in legal reasoning across three different divides. The first one is the judicial and arbitral divide. There's long been a view in a number of countries, um, including my home country of the United States, that arbitration is a second class form of dispute resolution, that somehow the justice is not as good, the adjudicators are not as good, and they're not as focused on the law. So I wanted to see if that was true. Then, because I do international commercial arbitration primarily, I wanted to see if there's any difference between domestic dispute resolution and international dispute resolution. Um, Again, there's there's been concerns that um, the more lax standards of domestic dispute resolution, um, particularly in the arbitral realm, may or may not be tainting the reputation of international commercial arbitration, which is highly legalistic. Many, many, many sources of law, more law than you actually know what to do with. And then the third uh, is looking to see whether there's any difference across the common law and civil law divide, because comparativists know for you know decades, if not centuries, there's been long been a dispute about the different use of materials and the different approach to legal reasoning in those two different legal families. And so I wanted to test that. As long as I was doing everything else, I might as well do that as well. And you 
For your methodology, you use three main methods, which you discuss in the book, and you set out as appendices the documents that you used. You did an international survey of 465 judges and arbitrators from 41 countries. You did interviews with 20 judges and arbitrators using much the same questions as you used in the survey. And you did a quantitative analysis of judicial decisions and arbitral awards. And I just wondered, while we stay on methodology for the moment, if you could talk a little bit about each of those. Let's start with the international survey. Okay, so one of the reasons I did the three different elements is that um, a single standalone study is always subject to questions about its validity. And so, of course, the methodology has to be quite strong, but you're never quite sure, you know, is it is it actually coming with the right answers? So I wanted to do the three different methods at the same time to attempt to triangulate the data and kind of confirm it as I was going. So the survey was actually technically the first one I did in time, and I based it on um, kind of the existing legal literature. I was trying to suss out uh, some of the preconceptions about legal reasoning in, again, commercial dispute resolution. And so I had, I believe it was 73 questions, which for those of you who do surveys realize that's a lot. Um, not everybody answered every question. And a number of those were dealing with demographics because I wanted to be able to sort the material as to country or seniority or gender or you know any other kind of, of these different markers. Um, and there was a number of kind of follow-on questions. So the the kind of the general areas that I was looking at, in addition to demographics and kind of who you are and what your experience is, is what are you looking for and what are you prioritizing in terms of your use of legal authority? In other words, what kinds of materials are most important to you? And then one of the things that I did throughout the three different me um, methodologies is focus on evidentiary matters or what I often call uh, factual authorities. And um, I have not seen any empirical work that tries to glean how adjudicators perceive different types of evidence. There's anecdotal um, evidence, there's, you know, kind of individual discussions from judges or adjudicators, but there's not been kind of a widespread approach. So the survey attempted to look at, you know, which kinds of evidence is most important to you and had people, you know, ranking things or saying what they did or did not uh, rely on. There was also a section on judicial and arbitral education. Um, I have an interest in that field, which is somewhat arcane, but I did a stint at the U.S. Federal Judicial Center, which is the research and education arm of the U.S. Federal Judiciary, uh, back when I was a fellow at the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, and that really gleaned my interest or kind of piqued my interest in how we train up our common law judges, because it's very different to what's being done in the civil law. Um, and again, are we preparing our judges adequately for the tasks in front of them? Um, and then I had a, a number of other questions on some other points, but but mostly it was looking at how, uh, you know, because I was limited in the, the survey, what I could ask, but how how do you, judges and arbitrators, typically use these materials? And that was a lot, I thought, 465 judges and arbitrators. How did you How did you find those people and how difficult was it to get them to agree to participate? In, in some ways, it was harder than I thought. In some ways, it was not. So the the judges were the hardest. Um, I had hoped that the FJC, because I had a longstanding relationship with them, I had hoped that they would send around a link to the survey. But unfortunately, they said, um, we will not do that unless we have the ability to assist you, you know, quote unquote, assist you with your analysis. And I had to remain completely independent. So I, I couldn't do that. But I contacted a number of judicial colleges around the world, judicial organizations, and met with a number of people who were very willing to help me and a number of people who didn't even return you know, my, my emails. Um, the same thing happened with the arbitral institutions. Now, I personally have a lot more contacts in the arbitral world because I've practiced there and you know, I'm, on a, with a, I'm a member of a lot of organizations, et cetera. So I could get directly to a lot of people. But I also asked for the assistance of a number of arbitral organizations and also ran into the same problem. Um, some of them were willing to help me, which was great. But a number of other ones said, we will only help you if we can assist you with the analysis. And again, I said, I'm sorry, I need to remain independent. And I, I want to write a follow-up article on both access to judges and access to arbitrators, because I think that it is really problematic. The only information we're getting from any of those institutions directly is kind of filtered through those organizations. And that 
you know, I'm not saying that that anybody's trying to be malicious, but as scholars, we need to remain independent. So I do have a lot more arbitrators than I do um, judges. And obviously, I have a lot more people whose native language or whose fluent working language is English. I did have a number of people who I could tell like from the comments that maybe, you know, English was not their strongest language. Um, but it there, you know, there is a bias towards an English language uh, adjudicator in the survey. And these are just the kind of biases that you can't get rid of unless you translate into many, many different languages. So let's talk now about the interviews. And I've, I was thinking if it was difficult to get judges and arbitrators to fill out surveys, I'm sure it was even more difficult to get them to agree to interviews. So you got 20 judges and 20 arbitrators, 20 altogether. And I think you did one hour interviews with them and you asked much the same questions as you'd asked in the survey. And I wondered why did you do the interviews as well as the survey? What what more information were you hoping to get? So when you do a survey, you have to anticipate what the answers are going to be, because particularly if you're going to be running statistical studies on them, as I was going to do, you need to have these pre preset answers. But as we all know, it's the, the detail is the important thing and there's nuance. And I couldn't be sure that all my questions were going to be accurate and that I would have, for example, anticipated all of the possibilities. And so having a discussion with somebody leads to um, uh, kind of more flexibility. Um, I had to, because of uh, empirical standards, it was a semi-structured interview. So I had to ask the exact same questions of each person in the exact same manner, which led one recipient just to keep saying, why are we why are we talking about this, you know, the particular defined term? I'm like, because I have to. I just I have to. Um, but I, I was able to open the door to getting more information and kind of more full answers. And I was very, very pleased in that the answers were very much as I expected. And I did not learn anything truly shocking that would have cast doubt on the way the survey was constructed. And so this was a benefit of doing them both at the same time. Um, and the, the other benefit of this particular approach is that I knew that getting access to the judges for the interviews would be particularly hard. But the benefit with particularly international commercial arbitration is there's a lot of former judges who have now become arbitrators. And so I could then ask them about both of their experience yeah. and ask them to kind of separate and tell me if there's any difference um, in an interview. And that was going to be difficult to do in a survey. And so I kind of I, I have X number of judges, X number of peer arbitrators and then X number of judge arbitrators. And then we're going to look now in a moment to some of the particular areas that you asked them about. But as it turned out, you got similar answers to the same questions, didn't you? So that, as you put it, the one validated the other, the, inter the interviews validated the survey and vice versa. Yeah, yeah. And so that that as a as an empiricist is really good validation of the data. It's not just, oh, you know, I designed it well. It's yes, we are right. Um, you know, the, the the scholarly literature that I based these studies on is actually correct. Now, they're, there, there is the possibility, though, that both in the survey and in the interviews, people were telling me what they thought I wanted to hear, or that they knew the, the field well enough to know that this is the response that is supposed to happen. And so either consciously or unconsciously, they could have been biased towards a particular response, which may or may not have been accurate. Um, and so that is that is one of the problems with both interviews and surveys. Sophie, your research broke new ground in a number of respects and you outline in the book the different things that are innovative. One particularly significant way in which your um, your research was new was in terms of the understanding of the term legal reasoning. And what was new about that was that you included factual issues as well. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about why you did that. So I sit as an arbitrator. And um, so I've been through a lot of trainings on how to be an arbitrator. And I have struggled with the whole, uh, you know, what do you do? And how do you draft this beast of, a, of a, an award in some very complex cases? And, you know, what, what I hear from my colleagues, and also, um, I, I was involved in training judges or judicial education at the FJC. And what all experienced adjudicators say is that the facts are incredibly important, at least in commercial disputes, you know, statutory or regulatory administrative matters might be different. But in the commercial side, the facts are incredibly important. And yet nobody was analyzing them and trying to figure out, again, how to 
um, how to gauge what's most important to, to adjudicators. And this is important information for scholars. It's really important information for counsel who would like to know how best to sway yeah. the minds of their adjudicators. Um, and the reality is, is when, you know, when we're teaching law and when we're presenting law, we're, we're taking our legal standard, we're taking our factual standard, and then we're kind of meshing them together to see how the facts live up to the standard. And so that's often called an application step. You apply the facts to the law or the law of the facts, you could say it either way. Um, and so measuring and trying to get into what judges are doing and arbitrators are doing at that step, I think is really important because if we're focusing only on statutes and cases, that's only part of what judges are doing and part of what's driving a particular outcome. I wonder if you could mention one or two of the other innovations in your study. One that you give is, for example, the extent to which judges and arbitrators do their own independent research. So what were some of the other areas that you chose to explore that hadn't really been looked at before? So it's it's hard hard to remember. I'm glad you you brought up that particular one. Um, so for me, the the kind of the innovative things that came out of the study are the things that I didn't know going in. And so the things that I didn't know were, uh, for example, in the United States, when you are trying to, so this goes to the third step, which is more the the coding exercise, which I think we'll talk about in a minute, but uh, trying to figure out, uh, trying to find decisions that discuss um, uh, that are fully reasoned dealing with commercial matters. There are not a lot of them because the law is so well settled. And that, that, that explains why, and the fact arbitrators. Important. Yes, that's why arbitrators and judges are not focusing on the law because the law of contracts around the world is so well developed. And when we, we have people come to us with disputes, it's all about the facts. How do these facts apply to this particular law? And so I thought that was a really interesting outcome. And that came about when I was methodologically trying to find the cases that I was going to use for the coding exercise. And I literally only came up with seven in the United States this, and we'll talk about it later, how how I was trying to figure out whether the um, kind of the arbitral revolution that occurred in the 1970s in the United States, whether that changed things. And the answer is no, it didn't. I even went back to the 1930s when we had a change in our civil procedure rule to see if that had a change. No, it didn't. We're just not litigating a lot of those matters in the United States. Um, so that I, I thought that was a fascinating element. I, I also... Um, was really surprised by concepts uh, surrounding publication and accessibility uh, uh, because a number of, um, at least in the United States, a number of matters, many decisions are not published. They There's kind of a culling, but who decides that? What are the criteria? And so our entire, in the United States, our entire concept of precedent is being shaped by factors that we don't really know what they are. Um, and I'm not saying, again, nothing malicious, but if we as scholars are taking the reported cases as gospel truth, we're missing something. We're missing a step. And that step is what's being published and, and who's deciding that. And so you can get access to those decisions in the United States and, and various legal databases like Westlaw are doing a better job in having unreported decisions. But even then, I don't think Westlaw is publishing absolutely everything. There's a lot of things that are not. And some things are just like orders, you know, discovery orders, et cetera. Um, but, you know, how, how do we compare that to other countries where they are not using a filter, um, where they are publishing everything? And so it's, it's, again, opening up a lot of methodological questions, but that impacts substantive research in a variety of areas, whether it's civil procedures, substantive contract law, um, you know, all, all kinds of things. All right, let's look now at some of the areas that are explored in both the survey and the interviews, and let's see what you discovered. So I thought we'd start with legal authorities, the use of legal authorities. What sort of questions did you ask? So I was asking, um, you know, breaking down the different types of illegal, legal authorities that might be used in both uh, judicial decisions and arbitral decisions. So in other words, arbitral awards were, were included as one of the possible sources of authority, uh, even though judges are unlikely to ever use them. Um, so I was trying to test out across these three different divides, comparing judges and arbitrators, comparing national and international, and comparing common law and civil law, where do they kind of break down? And I, it's very hard to kind of come up with broad statements because you have to get into the nuance. Like each chart that I did had different things to pull out of it. A lot of the analysis did kind of uh, on the legal 
authority side did reinforce the notion that um, you know statutes are going to be cited when they're when they're available and they're going to be the most important thing. Cases are going to be more important to common law lawyers than they are to civil law lawyers. But it wasn't at like that distinction wasn't as clear cut as many people think. It, the the numbers were a lot closer than um, than, than again people anticipate. Uh, there's a very uh, an interesting book by Vito Calabresi, who's a U.S. judge from decades ago, about the common law of statute or the common age of statutes. And it talks about how common law jurisdictions are now heavily, heavily reliant on statutes in a way that um, we normally would think civil law jurisdictions would. And I would include Australia in that, you know, the, from the from the courses I'm teaching, um, I would include that as well, that we are we are much more statute heavy than our common law heritage would lead us to believe. So the, the legal authorities analysis was really focusing on what do you use? How often do you rely on it? In what ways do you rely on it? Um, and, and that all of that research was pretty predictable because that's where the bulk of the existing research has been done. So one thing that I thought was interesting that you, I mentioned it earlier and where you went beyond research that had been done before and you looked specifically at how judges and arbitrators or how and when they did their own independent research where they went beyond the cases or the statutes that the council had referred them to. What did you find out? So that is a huge issue in the arbitral world because um, there's there's a <laughs> on one side there's concern and there's another side there's just kind of like, well, of course that's the way we do it. That, that if a question comes up, um, and, and I should distinguish between legal analysis and factual analysis. So on the legal side, some people say, well, of course, uh, an arbitrator can go and look up a case or you know do some independent legal research, because that's what judges do. Now, whether judges actually do that is not quite clear. And that can vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, and from type of dispute to type of dispute, they might be doing more research, for example, on a constitutional question than they would on a commercial issue. Um, so uh, in, in the arbitral realm, there is argument that such research is qualitatively improper because you have to give the other side the right to argue and the right to know what is being considered. And I actually um, just taught a case yesterday in private international law here at Sydney where uh, a judge basically was in the United States was taking um, some numbers or a damages calculation from one of the party's arguments and basically didn't give the other side a chance to rebut it, just incorporated it into his decision. And when it was brought to Australia for recognition and enforcement, it was overturned on natural justice grounds. Yeah, it's a procedural fairness issue, isn't it? If the judge goes away and considers legal authorities that haven't been referred to him or her, the parties haven't got a chance to address the issues that are raised by that. Yeah, absolutely. But yet it was still interesting that a number of judges and arbitrators will both say that they did it. Now, to some extent, they're saying that they're merely um, looking to update cases, making sure that they've not been overturned on appeal, et cetera. But there were a number of people who saw no problem whatsoever in doing independent research. They're like, that's my job. But it also depends for them, doesn't it, on the competency of the council appearing before them. And I'm sure that there's an element of that that goes into their minds. If they feel that they can trust the council that are appearing, then they probably feel they don't need to go beyond what's put before them. But if they have doubts about the competence of those people, I would imagine then they'd be more likely to go ahead and do their own legal research. Yeah. And and both the judges and the arbitrators said that a situation where there is a great inequality in the in the quality of counsel, or if somebody is appearing pro se, which you don't see that often in the, the commercial realm. Pro se means um, without counsel, by yourself. It's usually usually in the civil side, it's somebody who's indigent and they they can't afford counsel. And of course, there's no um, no right to assistance, legal aid in, on the civil side, which is a whole other issue, which I occasionally go off on because these are major rights um, and major issues that some of these commercial cases are dealing with. But that's, a, that's for another day. Um, yeah, so dealing with that inequality, how much do you help out either in the hearing or during your own research, because you got to be fair to the other side. And so judges do struggle with this and, and um, judges and arbitrators both. And so having these ethical discussions by both arbitrators and judges is really, really important. And if I've understood you correctly, you didn't find that there were, so, oh, I'll put it in the positive. You did find that there was not much difference between judges or arbitrators in this respect. Correct. Um, and I think that, that, 
it's that, that's partly because a lot of people who become arbitrators tend to be, you know, top of their class. And at least in the United States, they will have worked as as clerks or clerks, as we would, might say here. Um, and so they will have learned from the judge that they worked with what is appropriate. And that kind of sets their mental standard um, in terms of what's appropriate. And then they will also listen to the the, the ethical discussions. The, the big question is the factual side. How much is a judge or arbitrator allowed or permitted to go off on a, a kind of a, a factual analysis? And there's a judge in the United States named Richard Posner. He's he's now retired. Uh, he was formerly a professor at the University of Chicago. He's, yeah, he's Mr. Law and economics. Um, but then he went to the, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, which is one of our federal courts. And he famously would go back like to his chambers after arguments and, and would run like little tests, little factual tests in his chambers with his law clerks. Um, and some people are like, well, that makes good sense. You know, you're just you're you're testing out the the veracity of what people said. And other people are like, no, you should be doing that, you know, in open hearing. Um, and I think one of the cases was a like a copyright case and they, something about or something about how quickly somebody could put clothes on and off, maybe you know, firefighters case. I forget what it was, but um, he famously saw no problem with that. And many, many people do. Mm-hmm. And it's not a subject that is discussed in the legal education circles. And then when we get to the arbitral side, that's also not really discussed. So people are just operating kind of on their own internal compass. And, and I don't think that's right. We need to, we need to come to a consensus. So here we have the concept of judicial notice, that there are certain things that, you know, you can assume that the judge will know that that, that can take judicial notice of, I suppose, a, a red stoplight means stop, you don't need evidence on that. But once they get too much beyond that, doing those sort of experiments, that that does pose real issues in terms of procedural fairness, doesn't it? Yeah. And particularly now with the internet, you know, if there's yes. a, if there's a, a, an intersection where there's been an auto accident, is it yes. permissible for the judge on their own to go or the arbitrator to go, uh, you know, on Google maps and check that out? Mm. You know, of course they could do a site visit. They've always done site visits and when, you know, they take counsel with them. Um, yeah. But to do it back in your chambers, is that okay? And, and, and where's that line? Some people may say, well, that's fine because it's judicial notice, but you know, the, the line always gets pushed farther and farther back. So I I did ask a few basic questions on that in hopes that somebody's going to pick up that research and kind of take it forward, theoretically or empirically, um, because I do think we need to jumpstart a discussion about both these matters. Okay, so let's talk more about this. So we've just talked about the use of legal authorities. Let's talk about what you write about the use of factual authorities and evidence. And it seems that what you learned about how judges and arbitrators use factual material was a little surprising, that in fact they they relied, their decisions and their reasoning relied much more on factual matters than you had anticipated or that scholars generally had anticipated. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And certainly this was massively clear in the interviews. Um, I think... Uh, I, I don't think I had an intensity or question or it was kind of difficult to suss out the intensity issue um, from the survey. I think some of my statistical tests did kind of look at the the intensity um, aspect, but it, just statistically, it, it can be difficult to do that. Uh, but the interviews, it became quite clear that that the facts were where it was all at and that, um, you know, figuring out figuring out what, how to get to the proper facts. And so I thought that there'd be a really big divide between common law and civil law lawyers on their trust of oral testimony, because civil law lawyers are famously skeptical about certainly party witnesses, but all oral testimony, and they prefer to rely on the documents. But I saw a lot of common law uh, arbitrators and judges are like, yeah, we don't trust testimony. People lie all the time. What I want is a document. What came out is from both sides, whether it's judges or arbitrators, um, domestic or international common law or civil law is what they really want is a document that is then kind of supported by oral testimony. Mm. They, they want that contemporaneous writing and then somebody to kind of fill in the gaps, but in a consistent manner. And for them, that is golden. That That's going to be the thing that they rely on the most. The other thing I really found interesting with the factual argument is, or the factual side is how many judges, particularly common law judges who cannot control what is being given to them as much as a civil law judge can, or a civil law arbitrator, um, how much information is completely irrelevant. Uh, We as commercial lawyers are throwing everything at the wall, hoping that it will stick, Um, not quite sure what's going to be persuasive to the judge. And most of them, most of these judges and arbitrators are saying, 
most of it's irrelevant. You know, they can get by with what what in arbitration is called a trial bundle, you know, something like this, maybe something like this, depending on how complex your case is. But when they're getting um, thumb drives with the, you know, the equivalent of 50 boxes worth of information, there's no way they can read it. They know that the they know that council knows they're not going to read it. So why is it being entered in just because people are trying to cover themselves um, for an appeal or for some, you know, for some other reason? And it's this is adding to the cost of commercial litigation and arbitration. Just the inability of, uh, and a number of interviews said this, the, the judges and the arbitrators want the council to have some faith in what's going on, exercise some legal judgment, take a risk, and just you know, come up with the, the stuff that they think is best and go with it. Stop trying, you know, stop being so afraid and trying to put in everything. You're muddying, you're muddying the analysis. And having said as an arbitrator myself, I can say exactly the same thing. I really liked it when counsel was just like, these, you know, this is the three things you need to know. You need to know them well. Here, here it is. Off we go. We trust our argument. Um, and you know, they're well prepared. And and a lot of counsel is just not well prepared. And so they just throw everything and hope for the best. Sorry, a bit of a rant, but I just found that fascinating. Let's talk about one of the other elements then that you looked at um, in the survey and in the interview, and that's the actual reasoning process, how the judges and the arbitrators come to their reasoned decision. One thing I'm going to ask is that you looked at, as you said, that in a number of cases, somebody has been a judge first and then they become an arbitrator. Um, or they've been a judge for a number of years or an arbitrator for a number of years. And one thing that you explored was whether they changed their reasoning process over time so that they got better at it um, as they had got more years under the belt. What was the answer? They don't change it. Basically, what they come in, however they start, is how they finish. I'm not saying that people don't learn things along the way. They they probably do. They didn't really tell me about it, but you know, you you got to believe that, that they're going to change it. And this is a very important element for uh, arbitration and this concept of when when do you start appointing arbitrators? Do you wait until they're 60 years old, or can you trust a really intelligent 40 year old who may be less less expensive um, and have more time to to decide these things? So this concept of how people reason does not typically change over time. I had a few exceptions, a few people who said, at first I believed oral testimony, (laughs) now I don't, and vice versa. Um, But for the most part, it was really, really stable. And I think, I think at least on the common law side, that's just because of the way that we're, we're trained as advocates on, you know, because we're doing legal reasoning as advocates as well. But even on the civil law side, um, you know, the the judges and and the judges are trained separately from advocates in the civil law system. But uh, arbitrators will have come from the uh, typically from the advocate ranks. And so they're they, they don't have any specialized training. Mm. And it was interesting, too. I think you found that when a person had sat as both a judge and an arbitrator, their approach to decision making was the same in both capacities. Yeah. And, and this is a very interesting thing because uh, a number of users of arbitration have said that they they don't want a heavily legalistic approach. And yet a number of them think that the best person to appoint to their tribunal is a judge. I should have said former judge because of course a sitting judge generally cannot. So yeah, this this really I think opens the door to a lot of inquiries about who is going to be your best arbitrator and this this kind of appointment um, process that that the arbit- international arbitral community is is kind of stressing over in, in terms of who's the best one and how do we diversify and what are we doing um, and again it's 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 the conventional wisdom's wrong on this one. When you asked people in the interviews about what made a good decision, you said that you found it interesting that they focused on process oriented considerations and not outcome oriented considerations. Could you talk a little bit about that? So a lot of cynical uh, law professors have said, and this goes back to the 70s and and 80s, I think, or even before, uh, this concept of legal realism, that judges or arbitrators figure out what the outcome is, and then they analyze backwards to come to the outcome. And the judges and arbitrators I talked to, again, were either lying to me or lying to themselves or telling the truth. I'm going to go with telling the truth because they were so consistent, which is I sit down, I try to work it through in my mind. Some people think it through and then write it down. And some people think by writing, but if they're writing it out, and this is why we have reasoned awards in 
both international commercial arbitration and certainly in um, the common law. And, and even the civil law has has reasoned decisions, although it looks different than, than what a common law reasoned decision look like, looks like, is because once you start writing it, sometimes it just doesn't make sense. And you've got to change your approach. Um, and that's not a bad thing. It is showing that the legal reasoning process is working as it should, that you, you're putting the pieces of the puzzle together. And if you're, you think your outcome's here and you're building it and it keeps going this way, you, you've got to follow where the pieces of the puzzle follow, uh, take you. Um, because that's the only legitimate or reasoned outcome. So, uh, the, the judges and arbitrators were, always very keen on doing the right thing, very conscientious um, and recognizing that writing an award is a very difficult task. I did distinguish between writing an award and reasoning the award because they are different processes, but many people did do their reasoning by writing. Um, and certainly that uh, that is always the final test. Does it write? And if it doesn't, you have to change. You have to change your thinking. I'm interested in something you just said, and I wondered if you could explain it for us. What is the, You said that in both the common law system and the civil law system, they both use a process of legal reasoning that's probably similar, but you said even though they look different, how do they look different? So the, the most well-known example of a civil law judgment is the French system, and that is literally like one paragraph and it's kind of like a whereas clause. It looks like a lot of the preambles of um, international treaties. Whereas, blah, whereas, blah, whereas, blah, plaintiff wins. And you read this and you're like, I have I have no idea what they're saying. I have no idea the legal principles. I have no idea any of this. There's, there's actually some other subsidiary underlying documents that can kind of give you some more of that support. That is at the extreme of the civil law um, reasoning process that that is reasoned by French by French standards. It's just hard for the rest of us to understand. And I've I've spoken to French judge or French uh, advocates, and they're like we don't get it either. But a number of other uh, civil law jurisdictions have written opinions that look a lot like a common law opinion. They will, you know, they're discursive. They they have the facts followed by the law, followed by the application of the two. They will cite authority, including previously de decided judicial decisions. They don't have a system of precedent, but they do have a system of respect for existing authority. And they're going to try to be consistent with it, which ultimately is what precedent is. We talk about it being binding, but, you know, ultimately it's just, it's respect. So um, the, the German model in, in particular, I think, looks a lot like the common law systems from, from the translations that I have seen. You just see a lot of cases um, and just the way it's argued. The, I, I think in the book I had a quote about, because um, I don't know, I don't speak all these different languages. I only really speak Spanish and my Spanish is not really good enough to do legal research. But the, uh, some people are, you know, talk about how the German system is, is kind of... Uh, wide ranging. And then you compare that to the Dutch system, which is very straightforward and to the point. And, uh, you know, following stereotypes, I have a number of Dutch friends. I lived in the Netherlands for a while and they, you know, they are clear, straight speaking people. Um, and so apparently their legal decisions are very similar. They're just kind of straight and to the point, but they, they also rely on uh, other judicial decisions and other, you know, they cite the statutes. And so they, they, they look like common, they look like common law judgments to us. So in sum, if you look at the um, questions that you asked in the surveys and in the interviews, could you comment on each of the three axes that you're looking at? The, was there a difference between judges and arbitrators? Was there a difference between domestic and international arbitrations? Was there a difference between common law and civil law um, countries? What did you find from your survey and your interviews? So this is one of the reasons why the conclusion chapter is so short, is because um, I have so many different questions and so many different nuances that it is it is literally impossible to bring to bring out these really broad conclusions. Um, you know, so it's kind of a, a good selling point for the book, which is, you know, don't just look at the conclusion. You've got to buy the whole book and you've got to you've got to read the whole thing. But overall, there was not significant differences between judicial and arbitral reasoning. That was your primary goal to look at that. So that's hugely significant, isn't it, in terms of decision-making by parties as to which route they go down. Yeah, absolutely. Because I do want, even though this book has, you know, it looks very scholarly with all the statistical studies and, you know, little Latin bits and, and you know, Greek signals. Um, I wanted to help practitioners figure out where they should send their clients. Should they go to litigation or arbitration? Is there something, you know, which one's better for them? And the bottom line is, is in terms of the quality of legal reasoning, 
it's not very different. There's mm-hmm. there's going to be some nuances, um, but for the most part, they're both legitimate exercises. And so you can rest easy that if you go to arbitration, you're going to be getting good quality justice. And that was, I don't want to say surprising. Well, maybe I will. That that you hadn't anticipated that going in because as you, that was what you really wanted to interrogate because you had seen this concept bandied around about arbitration as being a second class form of justice. So you did answer that. You said that was your primary goal. And it seemed to me you did answer that question. Yeah. And I should say that it it might be a different outcome if I've been studying, say, consumer arbitration, because in the United States, we do have a lot of consumer arbitration and the the nature of those decisions might be different because for example, um, many parties appear without the assistance of counsel. And so the nature of the argument that's being presented to the arbitrators will be very different than the commercial realm. Even in domestic U.S. commercial ar- arbitration, you're still going to have counsel. Um, you know, the, the dollar amount may vary. It could be some small matters. It could be some very big matters, but you're going to have counsel. And so that's going to change the nature of argument. It's going to change the nature of the reasoning process. Stacey, let's move now to talk about the third method that you use, and that's the quantitative analysis of the decisions and awards. And I wondered how difficult it was to find decisions and arbitral awards to consider. I think you considered 70 arbitral awards, 34 domestic, 36 international, and judicial decisions you drew largely on US decisions, the English Commercial Court and um, courts in Quebec. How difficult was it to find decisions and arbitral awards to um, analyze? And then I'm going to ask you next about the coding methodology that you used. Yeah. And and the reason why I thought this part was important was because of what I said before about how people just it's an it's a natural thing for people. They want to look good. So in the interviews and the surveys, there's the possibility that people could have been telling me answers that they thought I wanted. So by doing the coding exercise, it's an objective um, kind of process. Um, and it takes all of that out. It's just what have they done? And, and also they can say they do one thing, but if they're doing something else, then you know that's a whole nother thing. So um, it was <laughs> getting some of the, the uh, judicial decisions was harder than the arbitral decisions. So I tried going to a number of arbitral institutions to see if I could get access as an academic to the original awards. And that's when they said, well, yes, but only if we get to oversee the <laughs> the writing up of your of your piece. I'm like, no, I can't do that. So in the United States, um, anytime you go to enforce or try to vacate an arbitral award, uh, you must attach it as a document. So these are all accessible if you can find them. So you have to you have to go through a variety of different steps. You have to find cases dealing with enforcement, and then you have to find where the, the underlying document is. It's a lot of steps, but my TAs were wonderful. <laughs> and, and they I gave them the search parameters, sent them off, and they came up with, as, as you mentioned, 32 international awards um, and a number of domestic awards as well. I think it was 22 domestic awards that were reasoned. And we had a number of unreasoned, which we also uh, analyzed as well. Um, it, the I've mentioned the difficulty with the US judicial decisions, that there's just nothing that is being um, published in the areas that we were searching. And uh, literally we came up, we we had a couple of different time ranges, time kind of spans. We only came up with seven US decisions that were dealing with the kind of commercial issues that we thought would be analogous to our arbitral awards. This was shocking to us um, and will lead to a follow-up kind of article. So there is something called the, the West Key System, which the, for literally centuries, the West editors have, um, identified the subject matter of every case and they they break it you know actually maybe we see it here in Australia too but but lots of different issues so they'll have you know 14 different head head notes so i looked at all con- literally all contract matters looked at joint ventures and looked at partnerships because i figured those would be the most analogous um and again only came up with ultimately with seven that were on the merits, there were a lot of things that were summary judgments and or, or other dispositions, but but we wanted to see something that was fully reasoned on both the fact and the law, because that was the only way it was going to be analogous to what we were what, what we were dealing with. And so, it shockingly small numbers. Um, the the English we looked at the English Commercial Court, and that was much easier. We had we had to get around some problems with duplication of um, of results just because of the way Westlaw 
kind of gives you the data. But we ended up with, I think it was 92 English commercial courts for the same time periods. And again, shocking, seven in the United States and and looking again, 92 on the merits coming out of the, the English commercial court. We looked at Quebec because that was an English speaking civil law jurisdiction. In the United States, the state of Louisiana is a civil law jurisdiction as well, but we wanted to get out of the United States because we had seven cases. And so we ended up with 28 cases from Quebec. Um, and we realized that Quebec is, I mean, it's in a common law country, but it itself is a is a civil law jurisdiction. Um, but that was the best that we could come up with within the English language. Um, and and so yeah, it was just it was it was harder getting the judicial the judicial decisions than the arbitral awards. Weirdly. <laughs> and then tell us a bit about this coding methodology that you used. I, I I think as I've understood it, you would look at certain things and you'd look at what percentage of a decision was devoted that. So what percentage of the decision was devoted to purely legal concerns? What percentage was devoted to purely factual concerns? What percentage was the application of law to the facts? Is that right? Have I understood that? Yeah. So that that's one of the methodologies we used. We ended up with 76 different data points driving my RAs and myself somewhat insane. A number of these were demographic for the same reasons that I was talking about before we wanted to see if you know we were going to sort by gender or location etc but then we had um we did what's what we call the paragraph by paragraph analysis and we did the citation count analysis so the paragraph by paragraph analysis is the one that you're talking about which is the truly innovative thing because i've not seen it anywhere else but what i was thinking is okay well we can't look at like number of pages because you know how do you space it or number of words is going to be hard you have to have a word document but we can look at number of paragraphs and break them down into what the arbitrator is talking about. Procedural matters, um, factual only matters, law only matters. And then this application of when you're you're kind of applying the legal standard to the facts or vice versa, the way you do it. And, and then the dispositive, um, you know, and, and so the plaintiff will shall pay $5,000, whatever it happens to be. And we could, if we counted the paragraphs and we knew the total number of paragraphs, we could figure out what proportion was being devoted to each of those sections. And that would help us figure out, we thought, um, if the judges were talking more about the factual matters or talking more about the legal matters or spending most of their time on that analysis. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a, it's a difficult process to do over uh, several several hundred different decisions, um, but but I think we were overall we were pretty confident a that the data we got was was correct, um, but that it's it's a new way of thinking about how people reason and and how um, you know how much weight they put on different elements. And what were the most important findings that came out of that? I knew you were going to ask me that particular one. I believe that, um, again, for the most part, there was a lot of consistency between judges and arbitrators. There were some differences. Um, what? So having practiced in London and New York as both an arbitrator and a litigator, my sense has been for a long time that arbitration is very similar to practice in the English commercial court. And there were certainly moments when the statistical studies suggested that that was true, that it looked like they were more similar than, you know, international arbitration to the Quebec practice. Um, and so doing more digging and, and you know, trying to replicate that that data, I think would be really, really interesting. Um, and that's particularly important now that we're, we're talking about the creation of a number of international commercial courts around the world that either compete with the London Commercial Court or with international arbitration. Mm -hmm. that, that concept of, uh, are these really operating as analogs? Um, are they, is it intentionally so? And, you know, bringing in the Singapore commercial court and saying, okay, how's that going to be operating in terms of these analyses? So uh, again, not, not a huge kind of swathe of, of one big finding, but some interesting tidbits throughout. I think one of the things that you pointed to is that, again, what emerged was just how significant the facts were. Yeah. And um, again, that that was something that we could look at in the paragraph by paragraph analysis. The other half of the substantive analysis was the citation count. And there has long been, at least in, in the US, this concept of let's count the number of citations and we'll figure out how legalistic something is. And that has only focused on like cases and statutes. I, I broke it down and also included international treaties uh, just because you know international arbitration is something. Um, but I believe I'm the first one to look at 
the citations to different types of legal authority. And this is hard to do because, you know, you don't have like an opposite or something. You just have a witness said or Mr. Jones said. And so, you know, catching that, you have to read line by line the entire the entire uh, award or decision. But again, it was it was very useful. We saw a huge focus on the contract, which makes huge sense uh, because these are commercial matters. And we we also look to see how many initial citations to different contacts there were, contracts there were, as opposed to subsequent citations to the same contract, trying to see if we're dealing with um, disputes that are only focused on a single matter, or as I believe, we're getting into a world where we have multi-contract disputes, where they're just very complex with a lot of contracts at the same time. And the latter did seem to be true. We, we didn't have a lot of kind of one, one contract matters. Um, they, they did tend to be more complex. Final question, Stacey. You talk in that final chapter about some avenues of further future research. My first question is, are you planning to do it? And my second question is, could you just tell us about some of those avenues for future research, which your work has opened up? Yeah. So um, the one that I'm currently working on is definitely a follow-up. It's a comparison of the coding exercise in the international commercial arbitration realm to contract-based investment disputes. When we were doing our Pull of cases or cases that led to the arbitral awards. Um, my students pulled a number of, of items thinking that they were commercial awards, but I looked at them. I'm like, no, no, this is an investment award. It just happens to deal with a contract as opposed to an international treaty and it's being enforced under the New York Convention. So I put those to one side because they were not commercial, but I held on to them. And so I'm currently writing a chapter for a book that is comparing um, these two elements, the, the investment realm and the international commercial realm. And it is supporting some of the general concepts that we have about investment realm, things like it's usually a lot more money. <laughs> um, there is a high degree of statistical certainty that yes, indeed, <laughs> these are different, that there's a, a magnitude of difference um, in investment arbitration and a, a few other little minor elements. I was hoping to do a gender study, a seniority study. I'm going to see if I can get around to doing those as well as my kind of more policy-based things about publication and publication of awards, who's doing that, what are the criteria, and then the the whole concept of access to judges and arbitrators. But in terms of what uh, what other people can do, people who don't have access to my database of of awards, etc., is first, I think it's really important that we start to do more work on the evidentiary front. Um, There just is not enough empirical information. And that is something that is a place where we can save advocates a lot of time and money, and we can save judges and arbitrators a lot of gray hairs. Um, If we just help everybody focus on what's important. Um, In terms of other areas of I mean, I would like to see people duplicate this with other data sets to see if I was correct. Um, and there was one other one. I can't remember, but I think we're running out of time. So I'll kind of let it let it stay there. <laughs> Stacey, thank you so much for talking to me. It's been a real pleasure to read your book, which I think will be of enormous utility to scholars and to practitioners alike. And thank you so much for speaking with me. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Nicole. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleadberty.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Aberdy, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.